Hi, this is Steve Vargo. I'm the Optometric Practice Management Consultant with IDOC, and this is Episode 9 of our IDOC Focal Point podcast. So uh, it's a pleasure to have a, a friend and co-worker with me today on this podcast. I got together with um, Nathan Hayes, who's the IDOC Finance Consultant, and we thought we'd discuss a few different topics that have, have been on our mind lately. So I'll stop here to introduce uh, and, and welcome Nathan. Thank you for joining me. Steve, it's a, it's a pleasure. We've wanted to do this for a while, and I guess our audience ought to know that um, what we're going to try to do is replicate a water cool, cooler conversation we've had a time or two, and uh, I, think, I think it'll be fun for us and, and fun for listeners. Great. Um, yeah, I would agree. And, you know, one of the things that consulting allows, I think, us both to do that we've talked about is contrast different offices. And, and I've always said, and I think we both agree that there's definitely more than one way to be successful as a practice owner. But over time, you observe enough practices, you do start to see certain commonalities and, and certain habits of the practices that continually seem to outperform the competition um, and, and operate at a, a high level. So let me get your thoughts on this first. What, what do you see as some of the uh, top things that, that separate the higher performing practices. Yeah, I think we want to maybe narrow in on on the leaders of those practices. So the the owners and something we discussed um, is you know even from a phone call with someone you kind of know without seeing any numbers of the practice you have a sense of of either how the practice is doing or where it's headed uh, based on on the owners and 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 just their talking with them. I think it's, it's funny. So my father-in-law, many of you will know this was the managing partner of his law firm for years. And I asked him once um, when I was starting to do some partnership consulting, yeah, Hey Bill, what do you look for? And when you're thinking about making an associate attorney, a, a partner in the firm. And he said to me, he said, well, Nathan, I know it when I see it. Thanks Bill. That's really helpful. And I pressed him on it. He gave me some answers, but I actually want to come back to that first statement because he talks about, it factor charisma a lot. And as we've done this for a while, um, there, there, there is a bit of that, that, that some owners have it, whatever it is, and, and some don't seem to. And, and one question that you could ask about that, that I want to come back to later is, um, can you develop those skills um, and, and those traits and those habits? And I think the answer is yes. I want to think about that with you, Steve, and get your input on it. But coming back to what it looks like for, for an owner, um, and this is what, what my father looks for in, in, in partners and owners in his law practice if he was going to make them owners. And I think it's useful. Um, I use it regularly when talking with, about bringing associates on as partners, but I think it's useful for owners to examine yourselves against these traits. So uh, number one trait my father looks for in an owner is they have to be able to grow the business. Um, they, they have to be willing and able to go into the marketplace and recruit new clients to the law firm. And I think for for optometric practice owners, the owners that take responsibility for getting more patients in the practice um, are, are going to be more successful than those that sort of just wait and, and think that if you open your doors, patients will show up. Uh, second thing is uh, they have to be productive, efficient with their time. In, in a law firm, when you're billing for hours, that's critically important because you can't run up hours without you know, producing product for your, for your clients. Um, you know, that they don't want to spend a ton of money for you just to go slow. Third thing um, that he would look for is actually ask the question, what risk do they pose to the business? So 
are you going to hurt the practice with your conduct in the community? Are you a jerk to your staff or your, your patients? It matters quite a lot. So I think, I think that's it. The big thing I see is just taking responsibility for the business. And, and by that, I mean, um, if you break down the word responsibility, it, it, it's how do you respond to realities as, as given? Um, do you, you recognize reality. So an unpopular reality that you and I talk about a lot with, with members is the fact that vision plans by and large control where patients will, will go to be seen. And do you put your head in the sand and say, I, I, I don't like them and I just don't want to deal with them. Or do you say, well, that's reality. Let me figure out how to make money with these. Or I guess I'll, I'll take them as a, as a matter of customer service. That, that's, that, that's how I see it. I'll, I'll let you chime in with what you see as well, Steve. Um, but those are a couple of thoughts just to get us started. Yeah. And just maybe to pick up on and, and expand on some of those ideas, you, you mentioned taking responsibility. And what I often see too, and I, I know we've talked about this, is the um, certain practice owners are, tend to be quicker to actually execute on things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that many practice owners, many business owners, this isn't really, uh, is not unique to optometry. Uh, most business owners have ideas. They have ideas bouncing around in their head of things they'd like to do. They have strategies. Uh, but there's an execution gap there with some practices where the strategies never really get executed on. Other practices, other business owners are quicker to actually act on those ideas. And I think that's something you need um, to, you know, we hear a lot of negativity in the marketplace and, and to a, a large degree, a lot of excuses being made and uh, people waiting for the perfect time. And what I like to see is practice owners who just spend more time doing, taking action on your ideas. And I also don't think it has to be any kind of massive overnight change. I think there's a, a misconception there. Uh, that we need to do things, do a lot right away to, to introduce massive change into the practice. But in reality, that's usually not how it works. Uh, I, I'll use the word consistency. A lot of, you know, we're, we're dealing for the most part with small businesses, in some cases just a handful of employees. And the uh, there's limited time, there's limited resources. And a lot of times the practices that tend to get ahead are the ones that are consistently doing the little things that show up to work every day, consistently driving and executing on the little things that over time turn into big change and turn into big improvements. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, you mentioned risk as well. And I think that there's always going to be with most practice owners, some concern with risk as there should be to some degree, it should be calculated, but, I'll contrast some business owners who are so averse to risk that they never take it and they, they operate from a completely um, area of wanting to be safe all the time and they're afraid to step out. I, I've come to realize that the riskiest thing you can do as a business owner is play it safe all the time because that almost guarantees you're not going to get to your goals. At some point, you've got to put yourself out there um, and be willing to to take some risk in your business and learn from it if you want to keep getting ahead. And, um, yeah. and I, think, I think the the bias for action you talk about, which is absolutely true, um, it, it's about being willing to put yourself forth. But but I think also owners need to be willing to fail quickly um, and fail often. 
And and so a lot of times we'll we'll tell owners um, who may not be charging enough for say their professional fees, and and they're worried that their patients are going to freak. I mean the answer is very simply, hey, you're a small business, you can change back tomorrow if it's not working. And so I think it's that bias for for action. Um, but I mean combined with try it if it works, keep doing it. And and it's absolutely true that that optometry practices are not. I mean, there's a risk in opening a business. You may not have enough patients. Um, your staff may steal from you. And there's risk everywhere, right? Uh, there's also reward, and we can talk about what, what owners like on that side as well. Um, but it, it's not a particularly innovative business model. I mean, you're not inventing something new. How to have a su successful practice is well understood. The practice optometry, while it is innovating, and, and that's a, another conversation for another day, those are, are tend to be at the margins and, and the core of the business is can you delight patients and are you consistent with how you do things? Um, and, and are you willing to, I mean, maybe another direction to go on the consistency is, are you willing to both cast a vision for your business and do you have the backbone to, and the, the fortitude to constantly remind your staff of that vision and hold them accountable to executing on it? Um, you know, what, what do you see? And I don't know that, that I see it necessarily, so I'm curious from you. How much does this casting a vision for what the practices care to patients looks like make a difference? Or is it just having expectations of staff in terms of this is how we, we talk to our patients, this is how fast we go, these are the things we're going to say every time? What, what's your sense of having a, a, a big vision versus just having concrete expectations um, being critical? Something in there I know is important, but I'd be curious if it's if it's a higher vision of like we exist to delight patients and help them see better or just, Hey, this is the expectation of how we're going to treat patients in this practice, you know, do it or find another job. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, it's a great question. And I think both are important. I, I think that this is a, an important area for the leaders and, and especially probably the owner to get clarity around is the big picture stuff. And in, in fact, I have a presentation I, that I do called Take Your Practice to the Next Level, which basically starts out with me asking the people in the audience to pull out a piece of paper and write down, where do you want your practice to be three years from now? So it's... I think easier for an owner and maybe even the people at the managerial level to wrap their mind around that bigger picture. I do think it's important to communicate that, uh, the goals, the core values of the company to the rest of the team. However, you, in, in some ways we can just look at that as a carrot. There's things, we, there's goals, there's, there's things we want to strive for, but what do we need to do differently on a daily basis? And that's the execution part that a lot of times we see that it doesn't always take place like it should. And then there's frustration at the top because we're not getting where we want to go. We're not getting ahead. We're just, you know, we, we settled into the state of the status quo. But what I'll typically talk with owners and managers about is, do the employees know what they need to be doing on a daily basis to that, that aligns and maps to those bigger goals? And that's a lot of times where leadership comes in it's providing clarity and coaching and training around the things that you need to do differently. It's not a one-time conversation. It's um, what I'll hear sometimes as well. We're failing in this area, so I need to get everyone together and we need to have a two-hour talk about this one area. You don't need to have a two-hour talk. You need to have a five-minute talk every single day. There are some things that should just be constantly reinforced in the practice. It doesn't need to be a hundred things, 
but you do have to find out what your core values are, what's important to you, and what are your priorities? What are the things we really need to be focusing on um, that's going to drive us toward the, the goals we're trying to reach? And I think the employees appreciate that. Because nobody wants to have a lack of clarity in their job. Employees need to know what's expected of them in terms of what they need to do. So it's, it's a great question. Both areas are important. I just think depending on where you are in the practice, um, you might have a bigger, a high level picture at the top, but being able to distill that down into concrete tasks that the rest of the staff needs to take and you need to be able to make sure that they're clear on that as well. I'm curious, let me throw a similar question back to you from a, maybe from a numbers standpoint, because we're talking about employee productivity, what are some things that you might look at there at, around metrics and numbers uh, to be able to put some clarity around employee productivity? Um, it's, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, as, as I look at practices, finances, and, and especially with employee management, I think the most important thing to recognize is your employees have almost no influence over the cost of the business. They have a ton of impact on the revenues, but not necessarily the underlying costs. Cost of goods, yes, with your optical staff, but that's one or two people. So what I want to think about with the staff, especially in goal setting for, for revenue growth for the year, and you need to be growing your revenues fundamentally if you're not, something's unhealthy about your business. Uh, but I'm going to think in terms of, of really three areas that drive revenue growth. The number of patients that you see, the revenue you generate per patient encounter, and, and then, you know, for, for your uh, billing staff, you know, collecting on, on third-party payments is sort of a, a wild card. But fundamentally, if you're going to go to the practice, you're going to see more patients or generate more revenue per exam. And, and so with, with staff on, on accountability, I mean, a lot of it's going to be with, say, um, your, your uh, reception staff uh, and scheduling staff and your, and your text is just going to be both. We have to keep the schedule full. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hold you accountable for no shows. People do it, but I expect you to beg, cheat and steal to get the schedule full if someone does cancel. Um, and, and with the text, it's, it's going to be around consistency and speed. Now we talk about efficiency for, for the, the owners. I mean, you can measure time to optical, um, Statistically, if it takes more than 42 minutes from the exam start time, not when the patient shows up, but start time for someone to get to optical, how much you can expect them to spend on glasses starts to go down quite a lot. So that's um, one thing to keep in mind. I think a good goal is under 40 minutes, ideally maybe 35 minutes if you can. I know not all patients will get there, but if you have the expectation you're measuring it, um, that will that will help. Um, so, and then with, with the rest of the staff, I think the, the big thing from a leadership and vision standpoint and, and accountability is just to talk about what is the standard of care in our practice? You know, do, you know, do you actually believe that every patient needs two or three pairs of glasses? And if your staff don't, they might not be in the right job because that either it's a failure on the leader's part to, for communicating that or, or they're not buying into the vision of the practice. And if that's the case, why aren't we all enthusiastically and with conviction telling people that, yeah, you need it. And by the way, what we offer is better than what you'll get somewhere else. Um, and, and again, I think as a leader, it's incumbent on you to, to put the alternatives in your staff's hands as well to say, Hey, our glasses are better. These contacts are better than, um, you know, uh, I'm blanking on the name than Hubble's. Um, 
et cetera. So just, I mean, I, I would do it in terms of revenue per exam and patients volume overall that those two things alone, if you improve them, your business is going to be better. And, and the, the revenue per exam is, is just a function of um, everyone really standing behind, including the doctor and the doctors, um, a full suite of benefits to the patient. And, and I think, you know, doctor owners pay attention. I haven't talked about money or benchmarks or profits at all in that. It's all focused on patient care and customer service. Mm-hmm. And I think if you keep it focused there, you know, practices that succeed from a benchmarking standpoint, you can ignore everything. If you delight your patients, you will succeed as a practice owner. Yeah. Or you really have to screw up another area not to make money. It's been done, but it's like two out of a hundred, you know, will will take on so much debt or, you know, overstaff with associates so much that the owner's in, income is severely hampered when you hit two million in revenue and you're still growing. Um, you, know, you really have to mess up on that front. But by and large, like if you grow the practice a million and a half, two million dollars, the owner's going to do great uh, financially and have lots of cho- choices of of what they do with that money. I admit to at one point not fully appreciating the value of customer service, even thinking it sounded a bit cliche. And people say, well, how did you grow your practice? Well, it's, it's through customer service. It's through delighting people. But we've talked about this. I'll ask you, what is the over and over when we look at our highest performing practices, if we were to ask them, what is the secret to their success? What would they say? If it's not the first, it's the second. It's, we focus on customer service and we delight our patients. We don't really have to spend money on marketing. Our patients come back and they refer their friends. Um, you know, other things people will say, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of a practice that's at $2 million in revenue and still growing 8, 10, 12% a year. Um, and there are more than one of them that we talk to every year. Um, you know, they'll also say, hey, we take all the vision plans we see as a customer service issue. Um, then we'll talk about technology. I kind of question that, although I will admit that from an obstacle capture rate standpoint, digital for opters where you can just flip back to, you know, uncorrected, corrected are really cool. And I'm sure they're very persuasive. Uh, that's not me telling everyone to go spend $25,000 tomorrow, but just be aware of it. Um, you know, some, some technology, you know, around from diagnosis will definitely drive, drive patient interest, but I'm not sure it's the differentiator that most doctors think it is, but, but service. And that, that really comes down to staffing and training them and holding them accountable. Um, does seem to be the one thing that'll stand out. Uh, to me. It, it's certainly a team effort and I, <clears throat> that, that drives back to leadership as well. I, mm-hmm. I was reading something recently and it really resonated with me in terms of how you approach the practice. And, and I'll ask this occasionally is, are you in the glasses and contact lens business or are you in the people business? And more and more what I see as a reflection of customer service is some businesses will approach this as 80% people, 20% product in terms of we are in the people business. We're in the business of serving people. We just happen to sell eye care versus... That's the the Zappos formula, right? We're a customer service company that happens to sell shoes. Yeah, and Um, it's easy to say, but are you actually living that? And and some are, but the the opposite obviously being we're 80% products business and 20% people. And it's, it's a completely different approach. It's a completely different mindset. And, and you see it in practices that have a, um, that do things the way they think people things want done or, or things 
uh, the way that they want it done and they're inflexible and change right. that or they're really rigid yeah. on policies that protect the business even it upsets the the patients and right I think at some point too we need to challenge conventional wisdom that's maybe not all that wise you mentioned before right. about the emphasis on efficiency and and making an effort to get people into the optical within 40 minutes and you've heard me say it a thousand times it obviously we're talking about doing that in a way creating systems that allow us to do that in a way that doesn't compromise clinical care or the patient experience but it's possible mm-hmm. with high efficiency but you'll still get a lot of practices that say well all my patients appreciate all the time I spend with them they're not getting to the optical uh, an hour and a half you know until an hour and a half after they walk in the door and I, I think we need to challenge that do people really want to spend that that amount of time in uh, getting their eyes examined and it's a um, uh, I think we times are changing consumer trends are changing there's a younger demographic coming into the market and and I think we need to be aware of it you don't always have to like it I tell people just don't Mm -hmm. ignore it because the market will vote on whether or not they like your service or not Yes, I, I think that's right. I do, I do think, and we, we see it and, you know, say the ODs on Facebook effect, which seems to be a, a, a host of, uh, you know, people complaining that the market doesn't want to be cared for in the way that they want to care that's most convenient for the doctor and their staff. Um, you know, I do, I do think that, that the practices that will thrive are, are thinking, first and foremost, what's going to make our patients happy? What's most convenient for them? Um, and, and not, you know, this is annoying. I'm so mad that VSP only reimburses me 60 bucks for the exam. Yeah. So, you know, ownership says, yes, that's true. And they'll also pay you 500 if you sell glasses. So why aren't you prescribing glasses? Um, but let, let's, I, I think, you know, a question that I want to ask you, and I have some thoughts myself, but so I, I, I'm certain you and I have talked, like there's an it factor and, and we've, we've been on call together where we've told doctors that are really struggling um, hey, you know what? You're in a bad spot and a lot of it was outside of your control, but you're doing all the right things and, and just trust us, hang in there. Whatever it is, you've got it and, and we're confident you're going to succeed and we'll get off other calls and say, you know, I can't. You know, this owner just won't. They won't execute on anything. They won't do anything. All they do is tell us why we're, what we're saying won't work. And look, we're consultants. We're not always right. Um, you know, I could cite an example on a transaction where I absolutely flubbed a piece of advice recently. So it does happen, um, however rare. But um, you know, what, what if someone is struggling, and, and you know, I have in mind, say, a four to six hundred thousand dollar practice that struggles to keep the schedule full, struggles to retain staff, um, you know, really isn't growing. You know, what 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 are owners' ability, and, and have you seen owners be able to change how they lead the practice such that it? It, it grows. I think you know, we, we, we get what comes to us. And so it's a, you know, I think both of us have probably worked with at least 750, not a thousand practices at this point over the past five years. Um, checking my numbers recently, I, I 240 unique practices I consulted with last year alone. Um, but, you know, are there things that owners can do to, to start doing better? Um, and, and can you develop these skills? What, what do you think on that? I think you can. I think for some, it's a matter of awareness on what they need to do differently. And for me, I'll bring it back to execution as well. Um, we do get people as, um, you know, somebody years ago in a previous lifetime when I was uh, talking with a consultant who 
I, I was talking with about starting a cold practice. I ended up not proceeding with that. But I remember you said something to me at that time that caught my attention and I didn't really know what he meant by it. But at some point in the conversation, he says, if you do what I'm suggesting, you can get to this level with your practice. And I remember thinking, why would I not do what you're suggesting? I came to realize later, and it was probably through experience doing consulting, that the the execution part is what separates a lot of practices that keep getting ahead from the ones that don't. And you, you will get that as... Um, with some practices that want to, they want advice, they want suggestions, but that fail to, to take action on that. The other one, which comes up a lot, is you will get owners who actually do want to move the practice forward, want to take action, but they don't have the support of their team. Now, there is a, that could be one of two things. Either you're not hiring good, you're not hiring the right people, or you're not leading them. And I would say it's a mix of both in, in a lot of cases. The yeah, and what uh, I may interject for just a minute. Yeah, on, on the leadership time with staff, I think one thing that I see with owners is, and this is taking responsibility for the ownership. Owners have to make time to do these things, and an owner's time is very precious. It's one of the reasons things efficiency and and is so important. Is just the owner has to create time to spend time with the staff and coach them to um, spend time looking at the practice. So, you know, making time for, for those of you who feel like you struggle in this area, maybe it's as simple as you need to, to look and say, if, I'm, if I've got eight open slots a week or 10 open slots a week, I need to drop a half a day for now um, and take that time and, and, and work with my staff and give them feedback and recast the vision. Um, but, but time is one thing, I think, in terms of ways that you can um, improve as a leader, creating the time to do it and, and just blocking out and, and showing up consistently to have a 10 minute stand up meeting twice a week. Um, those things add up over time and, and we can give you feedback on what to talk about if you're worried like, Oh, well, now we're here now what? Um, but uh, making time is one thing. I think just one other thing and I'll let you get back in since I'm interrupting you. Um, I, the best owners will know what they don't know and will, will spend the time look, seeking out advice and also figuring out, you know, what am I good at? What am I not good at it? And, and I was listening to a podcast from a former Navy SEAL. He did a lot of training with SEAL teams and they would all, he would put them through training exercises. And he said, you know, the, the, the results, I mean, all these people have the same training basically are all physically the same, you know, very fit men in combat. Um, the difference in performance is all about leadership in each group. And it doesn't mean that each leader is the same, but the best leaders will find, put a team around them that complement their weaknesses. And so I do think as an owner, if there's stuff you're not good at, go hire someone who is. And, and that's, this comes back to responsibility um, and some self-awareness. But um, you can, you can complement your weaknesses. You need, some you need to develop, um, but, but some things you can go out and hire and complement yourself. Um, and, you know, famous cases, if you look at the case studies of Microsoft and, and Apple in particular, you know, we always hear about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, but their right-hand men, right, right-hand men were the business minds that actually made the businesses as well as, as you know, Jobs and Gates were creating the products. So um, keep that in mind that you don't have to be everything to your practice. You do have to go get what the practice needs. It's a challenging dynamic being an optometry practice owner because so much of your time is spent away from the front lines. 
you're in a small dark room in the back. I think the average OD spends 80 to 85% of their time in clinical care. So since we seem to be honing in on this topic of leadership, a lot of times what I'll see is a leadership void in the practice. If you're spending 85% of your time, which is, it's, that's the that's the requirement for optometry until you replace yourself, let's say with an associate. But the reality for a lot of doctors is they don't get a lot of time to spend on practice management, on managing the staff, on being what we call the CEO model, right? So it is a challenging dynamic and a lot of practices will plateau earlier than they should because of this leadership void, because there's really nobody there uh, in, a, in a lot of practices that is in a, a strong leadership role who can, uh, who's competent in that role. So you're absolutely right. You need to figure out a way, if, if your time is getting pulled away significantly in, in clinical care, which is great, it means your practice is busy, it means you've been doing a lot of things right, but you need someone out there who can operate in a leadership role. A lot of times that's an office manager, a supervisor, but just having that person by title doesn't guarantee that there's going to be strong leadership out there. That's a tough role to fill. I'll often tell offices that's one of the most important roles to fill because it's what the practice needs to keep moving forward. So obviously the, in, in most cases, the doctor is the owner of the practice, the CEO, but you need somebody that you can communicate directly with on what the vision, what the goals are, who can go out there and make sure everybody else is doing their role as well. Um, you know, a couple of things I look at with employees and leadership is somebody out there, whether it's you, whether it's a manager, who can continually provide clarity for the employees. So to me, that's so important. So many of the problems I hear in practices stem from a lack of, especially around practice or staff management, a lack of clarity, lack of clarity on goals, on job expectations, performance expectations. A lot of times I'll ask when I hear about an employee who's underperforming, do they know that they're underperforming? Do they know what's expected? Somebody who can provide the training and coaching people need, it's not a two-week process. Uh, it's not a, something you should do once, wait till somebody's failing and then pull them aside and fix everything. Really, that should be an ongoing process of continually developing your employees, but also giving them some autonomy. You cited Steve Jobs, and I use a video in one of my presentations where he talks about at, at some point, you have to, assuming you've given people the clarity they need, the coaching, the support, the resources they need, you have to let them get involved as well, make some of their own decisions. When you don't give them any any involvement, any ability to make decisions, any ability to come to you with solutions to problems or better ways of doing anything, of, of doing things, they'll stop coming to you. And that's bad too. So um, yeah. just holding people accountable for these things and holding yourself accountable as well. So for me, that really is, is sort of the fundamentals of leadership I try to instill in, in practices. Yeah, and I think, I think for most people, a piece of encouragement is um, that most owners are you know, scientists by training, not dispositionally you know, looking for conflict. And, and these can be terrifying conversations to go to a staff member and say, you're doing it wrong. Um, but it's, it's a muscle that you can work on. And, and the most important thing is just put your neck out and have a conversation. Uh, it may go badly and you'll learn from it, but the, the more you have it, the better you'll get at it. Um, so, and again, this is the bias for action, but some of these conversations, um, you know, just start and having it pull, pull someone aside into your office, take five minutes and just say, Hey, listen, let's talk about what happened with Miss Jones. I mean, I think she was really, 
disappointed, you know, what, t- tell me what happened. You give me your sense and then let's think about how we might do it better next time. And I, you know, Steve and I have had conversations where we got off a console call, like, Hey, Steve, this happened on this call. <laughs> what could I do better? Because it didn't go well. Um, and, and so, you know, work with your staff, be willing to admit that your failures as well, I think will make a huge difference. And if a call, if, if a conversation goes badly, you know, let the dust settle for a bit and then apologize and say, listen, that didn't go as well as I'd hoped. Let's, let's, let's try again. But you will get, you can build your backbone. It's not an, I have it or I don't. Um, it's a muscle that you can exercise and you just have to put your, your neck out there. And, and as well as you do it, if you do it consistently, the staff will be used to it. And it won't be a shock when you pull them aside and say, hey, what happened with Mr. Smith? Um, so I think that, that the encouragement would be that a lot of people feel like they can't do these things. They're not good at them. Uh, but you can practice these things. Uh, book recommendation. Uh, there's a book called Fierce Conversations that may give you some ideas as well on this. Uh, but I think from a management standpoint, what I'm realizing is that you know, managers absolutely have to have a backbone. And, and be willing to put their foot down and say, this is not how we're going to do things. They also have to have empathy. If your staff don't think you care about them, they're really not going to care. Um, if they think you're just in it to make more money, that's really not it. If, if they see you thinking about patients first, they'll imbibe that as well. And it'll affect how they work. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I'm going to wrap up with that, Nathan. And you mentioned something that, that I stress a lot and what I see in people that are good leaders are they tend to be a nice mix of assertiveness and humility the ability to have a backbone but the also uh someone who possesses empathy as well i'll also say great book recommendation and that uh, you know i had as we're talking just jotting some things down and at the bottom i wrote communication and i circled it twice and i think anyone listening to this hopefully can appreciate the value of communication. If there's one thing you take away from this in terms of leadership, in terms of business ownership, and I will tell people over and over that 90 plus percent of the problems I hear, certainly at least with staff management, uh, traces back to poor communication. Just talk more. Provide, you know, more clarity for your employees. Give more feedback, both as as a group, one-on-one, two-way feedback. Be open to feedback from them as well. Just communicate better, and that will solve so many of the problems that you have in practice. So with that, Nathan, I will, uh, if you have any last things you want to say, I'll give the floor to you. I'll piggyback one thing. To have communication, it means you have to create time and space for that. Um, and, and that means blocking out regular time and being religious about it. Um, that at first it'll feel forced and over time it'll be the best thing you did. And it's really, uh, it's incredibly short-sighted to think that blocking out 15 minutes twice a week of your staff's time where they're not taking care of patients won't pay huge dividends down the line. Um, so, you know, you don't need to pull out two hours every week, uh, just a little bit of time consistently. And that's on the owner to find the time, make the time, prioritize it. And, and then, yes, communicate, communicate, communicate. So, Steve, thanks for the conversation. This has been great. Thank you, Nathan. This was fun, and I imagine we will do this again at some point. Um, all right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the IDOC Focal Point Podcast. Thank you again, Nathan, and we will uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone.